right. Well, I want to ask you, if you will, um, to turn to Genesis 28. Genesis 28. That's towards the beginning. <laughs> really close, actually. <laughs> yes, really close to the beginning. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> About in the middle of Genesis, close to the front of the of of the scripture. Yes. All right. It's good to see people turning and some of some of you actually got those papers flipping. That's good. Um, I want to look at verse 12 real quick. Well, let's look at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there overnight because the sun was set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down there to sleep. Right? Which is what we'd all do, take a stone to put our head on it. Right. Surely you could find something else. But verse 12, And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood over and beside him and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. I will give to you and to your descendants the land on which you're lying. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit. We talk, we kind of bre- we breached this subject, but not a lot before, but talking about Jacob's ladder. We can talk a little bit about Jacob's ladder here. Obviously, Abraham's not his, his dad, but his forefather. But Abraham's the father of the Jews, so, you know, of the Israelites. So I believe that's why it says it like that. Um, but let, I just want to talk with you for a minute about this, about the fact that, or about the supposition that, well, you know, many people view Jacob's ladder as the portal that angels come up and down from heaven, you know, and, and that's fine. I mean, it, it very well could be a portal by which angels come up and down, you know, that he saw, but I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus Christ is Jacob's ladder, you know. And um, I know we've suggested that before, and people have, other people have said that as well. Um, and it, it's just really interesting that he saw a ladder set up on the earth, at the top reaching to heaven. Um, and, you know, the word there, angels of God being messengers. Messengers of God ascending and descending. Now, the one thing I want to share with you, and you'll, you'll probably know this having read the Bible yourself, there's not one example that we have of angels using a ladder. I mean, you never see, you know what I'm saying? In Revelation, you don't, when you read, the, and, and a mighty angel descended from heaven, it doesn't say descended down a ladder. You know what I'm saying? So this is why we can be pretty sure that this is symbolic language, right? And not a portal <laughs> through which angels, you know, not that they may or may not. I don't have a clue about that. But the point being that this particular ladder is something else. And the angels probably aren't angels. They're probably the true definition of the word. They're probably the messengers of God or the sent ones of God. And, and so I just want to go through this with you. My new microphone's just not doing right. 
All right, trying to make the sound better. Looking at it this way, if, if, if you will, just stay with me for a second. Um, it's set up on the earth. Now, it's interesting that it's set up. What happened to Jesus? He was lifted up. He's lifted up on the earth, right? And when Jesus was lifted up, or at this point where he was raised up on a stick, what happened? What do we know happened at that time? What was rent from top to bottom? The divider between heaven and earth, right? Make sense? Yeah. So really, when we get into to John, John 1, 51, we'll flip over for those of you who, who can flip over, John 1, 51. We find the exact same language from Jesus himself. Um, he had been talking to Nathaniel, and uh, verse forty-nine, because he gave Nathaniel a word of a word of knowledge. Nathaniel said, "Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel." And Jesus answered and said, do you, "Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these." And he said to him. Assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It's very interesting that it, you know, that could be a typo, it could be a translation error, but it really isn't. He literally says they will ascend on the Son of Man. You know, because if you were thinking about, surely uh, when Jesus was in the wilderness, angels ministered to him. And so you could easily see how it could be angels descended down to the Son of Man and then ascended back up. But it doesn't say to, it says on. It clearly says on. And when you begin to talk about ascending on, it's speaking of the latter itself being Christ, not just them ministering to him in some capacity, but the messengers of God ascending into the heavens and descending back on Christ himself. And what's interesting too is that we have a good many accounts by the apostles, by the disciples, and never does anybody mention that angels ascended and descended on Jesus. They never say, and, and I looked and lo, an angel came down and stood on Jesus and as soon as he, and then left and went back up. Not one time. You know? Although we have all these other accounts of different things and he clearly told Nathaniel he'd see it. So what was he telling him he'd see? Something different. You know? Something different. And it, it's just, it's just, Something really to think about because where we go from here is is really interesting. Now, back in in, in back in Genesis twenty eight, you don't have to turn there, but I just want to. The word for ascending, Allah, means it it literally means to go up, and the word for descending, Yarad, means to descend, to come down, um, ladder, Sulan. Just as likely means staircase as anything else. It could mean ladder. But what's really interesting about the root of that word from Sulan, they take that word um, from Salau, 
And it, that, that's just tremendously interesting to me because salau means to lift up. So the root of this ladder means to be lifted up. And what do we know about Jesus? He said, and I, if I be lifted up, shall draw all men unto myself. That's almost too much to just let go by without paying it any attention. You know, that he's saying, I'm the ladder, right? Or it sure sounds, it's funny. He says that, you know, it, it's really interesting. Jesus, what he says is usually coming from Old Testament scripture. He repeats it. So what's he saying here when he says, you shall see messengers ascending and descending on the Son of Man? He's saying, I'm the ladder Jacob prophesied of, and you're going to see it. You're going to see the product of it. That's literally what's happening here. He's saying, the ladder you've been waiting on is here. Because what's a ladder? It's a way to get there. We are separated on earth from the heavens right? And what we needed was a way back to God, a way into the presence of God, right? And so what do we need? We need a staircase to go up. And he says, this staircase that your forefather Jacob saw is here right in front of you. You're going to see much greater things than me just being able to tell you, I saw you under the fig tree. You get it? There's going to be heavenly things going on here that far eclipse the little word of knowledge that I saw you under the fig tree. That makes sense? It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing what he told Nathaniel in just a little word there. Of course, we've we got to assume Nathaniel knew scripture. He knew what he was saying, you know? But it's just interesting. Um, so, you know, in John, the definitions follow. The definitions in the Greek follow the definitions in the Hebrew. There's no, there's no variance in what they mean. They, they go together well. Um, and so if you, if, you begin to, if you begin to think like, you know, the Greek word for, you know, let's just, we'll just speak, talk about angels. Uh, agilos, a messenger, an envoy. Now, I want you to know that, yeah, it's used of angels. But stay here with me for a second. Do we need to, as a church... As a church universal, do we need to revisit angels? I mean, let's think about this for just, and this is just a side note, but I just want to ask you a question, something to think about, okay? Cherubim, seraphim, messengers. Now, cherubim have characteristics. You can read about them. These messengers show up looking like men. Sometimes glorified men, but they show up looking like men. Mm -hmm. Men. Do we need to revisit some of these things? Do you think cherubim are changing into men, or are there men that went before that come back to deliver messages? I'm just asking. When Jesus is talking to one of the messengers towards the end of Revelation, does he not bow down to worship? And the messenger says, oh, wait, no, I'm of one of you who carry the message of Jesus Christ. Worship God. Right. But more so, he says, I'm of one of your brethren. 
Now, you think we're brethren of cherubim? So I really think the church, you know, this is not for tonight. I'm just throwing that out there so we can understand the spiritual aspect of what's going on. I don't think that we, I mean, consider this with me for a second. Jesus goes up on the mountain before he goes to the cross. Who strengthens him? Who? Yeah, they're what? They're not cherubim. They're, yeah, they're men, messengers, right? And so when Jesus is in the wilderness, or oh, I'll give you one, all right, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says an angel came or a messenger appeared to him and strengthened him or ministered to him. And we automatically think cherubim or seraphim, right? But who strengthened him on the mountain before he went to the cross? Two men messenger. Why wouldn't it be another one? I just don't think that people have given these kinds of things a whole lot of th thought in terms of what it may or may not be. That's all I'm saying. But we're using that tonight just to broaden our horizon so we understand, you know, that there are spiritual aspects that theologians haven't necessarily covered. Or maybe they have, but they certainly hadn't told us. You know, so let's, let's think about it together as we go forward, just how big it can be. Now, the word... Agilos is used in the first two definitions I found in the New Testament for angel as used when he says, you shall see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The first one is Matthew 11.10, if I wrote that right. So let me look real quick. I want to look at it, and I want to read it to you. So you, so you see what I'm saying. All right, you ready? Matthew eleven ten. Speaking of John the Baptist, not cherubim, not a cherubim, but the same word that we that so many times used for angels, which really is translated correctly, mostly messenger, here used not of an angel again or a seraphim, but of John the Baptist. You ready? Behold, I send my messenger before your faith before your face who will prepare your way before you i send my angel before your face the angel of the lord or my angel and it ends up it's not a cherubim a seraphim it's john the baptist it's a messenger you with me you're starting to kind of see what we're saying here it, it, it's so easy to believe that it could be the messengers of god ascending and descending on christ and not actual cherubim or seraphim which can probably come and go as they will or at least as they're directed. Certainly the fallen angels do, and they're not using a ladder, <laughs> right? The powers and principalities, as far as we know. So, um, interestingly, the second usage is in Luke 7, 24, and it also is speaking of men. It's speaking of John the Baptist's messengers that he sent to Jesus to ask, are you the one or will there be another? That same word is used to be his messengers that he sent. So we're not proposing something that's crazy. We're proposing something actually that's very common. Very common. Extremely common. Okay, I just want you to know that. And you can do that study on your own. But, but it's just, it just is really interesting. And Jesus says you'll see the messengers of God ascending and descending on me. 
Now, let, let's, let's go a little bit further since we're there and, and turn, if you, if you still have your Bible open, to John 10.10. 10. Right? Because we're going to get somewhere in a minute. Lord, let this be in our hearts. Father, fill our hearts with this. Let us see this. I want to, and, and, and access a John 10.10, 10, but let's, let's do 10.9. Red letters, my Bible, Jesus speaking, right? I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If you wanted to get to heaven and you need to enter, what would you need? You need a ladder. You need a ladder or a way. Symbolically, in our minds, heaven is way up there, and God allows us to have that symbolic mindset, right? Because he is higher, spiritually speaking, which to us equates with, like, physical height, right? So we have to see it that way because where we live, it's true. Whether that exists in the realm of God, I don't know. But the point is, right, we need a door, we need a gate, we need a way. Jesus at different times tells us he's all these things. He also says, I'm the ladder, right? So it's pretty clear what he's saying here. Anyone who enters through me can what? Go up and come down. They'll go in and come out. And then you have the picture of the ladder saying that the messengers will go up and come down on him. And here he says, I'm the door. They're going to go through me into heaven and back, right? Into the spiritual realm and back. And it's interesting, folks. You can't be fooled by this because he gave us so so much information. People that would want to say he's saying they'll go to heaven one day are missing the point that he clearly says, and they'll come back. And it says they'll go in and out. And the, and the emphasis is on them doing it. And not only is the emphasis on them doing it, they do it to get provision because they go in and come out and find pasture. <laughs> it's amazing. They go in and come out and find pasture, right? So I would ask you then, what do you think happened to Paul in the wilderness, when Jesus appeared to him, began to download, you know, the New Testament, the way it actually works. In Ephesians, I think, 3, he tells us that it's the mystery which had been not disclosed to the ones who came before, which now has been dis- disclosed to his holy apostles and prophets, which is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs or co-heirs with the Jews or the Israel in the blessing, right? It's the mystery. How did he get the mystery? He went in. He got pasture and an assignment and came back. Amen. He went up the ladder and came down on it. The ladder is Christ. (laughs) Amen. That makes sense. Yeah, we get revelation. We get revelation. We get understanding. People get visitations, but they don't leave. They think they leave. Most of the time, they don't leave. Most of the time, they go through the ladder, who is Christ. He's, guys, it that we think is so far away is right there. It's right here. It's not far away. But that's what we think. 
We've been conditioned to think that God is so far away. Paul taught us that we've been brought near. (laughs) He did. He said we've been brought near. And who brought us near? Jesus. Now, it's interesting, too, that he took a stone and put it down for his head. Now, you could equate that to a cornerstone. Paul says, on this rock I built a foundation, and the rock is Christ, you see. And so there's all this symbol, all this spiritual symbolism pointing to Jacob's ladder being Jesus himself. And there's also all this spiritual symbolism pointing to the fact that people standing on the earth who are already, this is a past tense usage now, who are already seated in heaven alongside Christ have full rights to go and come. Now, you can't take your body because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Yet, it stays here. But while you're here, your spirit is joined and in Christ, seated in heavenly places. Um, yeah, he did. And the best and the best thing that I can use that I can think of right off the top of my head is that Ephesians 10 I reference all the time. For in these last days, God's taken all things in heaven, both in earth, and joined them in one in Christ. All things, both in heaven and in earth, and joined them in one in Christ. He's joined them in one, in, in one person. And we teach that really there have only been two men symbolically to God, fallen men in Adam and resurrected men in Christ, redeemed men in Christ, right? And that's why we, we say that. Um, doesn't mean you don't exist as a person. It just means when God sees you, if you're in Christ, He sees you sinless because He sees you as Christ, right? Amen. All right, so it, it just gets, it gets more and more interesting. But think about this in terms now. I'm going to John 14 now. Think about this in terms of, of this particular uh, truth that Jesus revealed. Um, I'm going to look at, I guess, verse 5, 14, 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Or how can we, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, Thomas, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you do know him and have seen him. Now I want to get to one other thing, so I'll read a little bit further here. And Jesus continued and said to him, Have I been with you so long, and let and yet you've not known me? And then this he says to Philip. Um, because Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. You know, have, you, have, you, have you really known me this long? And believe that I'm not in the Father and the Father in me. Now, this is interesting for later. The words I speak, I do not speak by my own, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Okay? I'll come back to that. Believe me when I say or believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Okay. Now, so what he basically says is, there, he says, hey, the where I'm going, you know how to get there. And he's obviously going to heaven. That's where he's seated. And they're like, no, we don't either know where you're going or know how to get there. And what's his answer? 
Because remember, we're trying to figure out how to get from earth to heaven. And what does he say? I'm the way. You know the way. You know the way because I'm the way. You know where the ladder is. I'm the ladder. You know how to walk through the door. I'm the door. You know where the gate is to enter because I'm the gate. All these different symbolisms he gives to say that he's the way to heaven, right? That he's the way to the Father. And he just goes goes through it. So now, if you will, go to Revelation with me. Go to Revelation 4. Let me turn over there. And he, he just finishes with the churches, with the, and, it, you know, we've gone over this too. With, it's interesting that in Revelation it says to the messenger at the church, and it's been translated so many times to the angel, but actually, again, I'd have to say it seems odd at best that the Lord would have a, a book and say, book, tell the angel what to say, when in every other instance, in Revelation itself, angels come from heaven knowing what to say. But the reason it would be written is so that when messengers are raised up on the earth, they have Scripture, and when they read it, the Holy Spirit quickens it in them, and they know their purpose, and they speak the things that they've been told to speak. Right? And that's probably mostly what that is, quite honestly. It has nothing to do with cherubim or seraphim. It has to do with men that have an anointing when they read it, and the Holy Spirit says, boom, and all of a sudden the messengers know the word they're supposed to give, right? Because, again, God wouldn't need to tell a book to tell angels what to say. They, he sends them down here with it <laughs> in almost every instance in Scripture. Matter of fact, they open the books <laughs> a lot of the time, right? So uh, it's, it's very interesting. But you read here at Revelation 4.1. Now, John's been having this discourse and, and then he says, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Right? Who opened the door? Who is the door? Amen. He's the way. He's the gate. He's the door. He's the ladder. All right. So, prophetically, John's seeing something here. But look at what... It's interesting. He says, And the first voice which I had heard... Now, that's the voice of Jesus, because Jesus first addressed him. And it was a voice like a trumpet. Right, And he says it again. He said, And the first voice, voice which I had heard addressing me, like the calling of a war trumpet, said, What did he say? Come up here, and I'll show you what may, must take place in the future. Look at verse 2. At once I what? All right, so let me ask you a question. Was there... We've got to understand this for what we're going into in a minute. This is very important. John's being invited into heaven. He's, he's going he's gonna to ascend on the ladder, which is what's been Jesus prophesied and what Jacob saw, the messengers of God ascending and descending into heaven and back. He's about to do this. As a matter of fact, he's invited to. Jesus looks at him. Jesus, the door is wide open. He says, come up here. Now, the point I want you to understand is 
There's no physical effort on John's part. There is no physical effort on John's part. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And so he's invited up, he believes. And so what happens next? He's in the spirit. Right? Makes sense, doesn't it? So you understand that Jesus brings heaven close to you. He brings the things of heaven near to me. I don't have to go run up a mountain to get the things of God. Amen. I don't have to keep a certain set of rules to somebody's satisfaction to get the things of God. The things of God are as near as the Word of Christ. Does that make sense? Remember, there's no physical effort exerted here at all. It's simply the Word, and then next thing I know, I was in, I'm in the Spirit. Right Now, if you were to say, if you were to want to be healed, what do you think would be the same method? If you were to want to be healed, what would be the same method? Is it far away and something you have to slave and work for? Now I want to read you a scripture we've been on a lot lately and see if it comes into focus. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. But what does it say? The word is near you. (laughs) The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith which we preach How close to every Christian are the promises of God? How close is heaven to every believer? It is amazing how our answer is right before us at all times. It is amazing how close we are to everything we need. And the, I guess the links maybe that Satan's gone through to make us believe that God is still so far away from all of us. <laughs> you know what I mean? When in fact, it's clear from Scripture, he, dwell, he, he, he dwells within us. <laughs> Amen. Isn't that, isn't that something when you think about it? Uh, it it's amazing to me. It's just amazing. Now, let's look at the rest of it right quick. And this is the most, I think, important part. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I know we've read that a million times, but I want that to be revelational to me tonight and to you if you can. And I'll say, um, all right, Lord, please help me with this. That your very salvation depends on you. Not to procure it, it's been procured, but to enact it. Did you hear what we read? 
I want everybody in the room to understand how much freedom God's given us and how close we always are to our answer. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved from whatever. How close are we to the truth at all times? How, how true was it that Jesus said, anyone who doesn't believe in me is judged already? Anyone who doesn't confess me is judged already. I don't need to judge them. Why? Because if they believe and they confess, they'll be saved. And if they don't believe or don't confess, they won't be. He doesn't need to do anything about that. The truth has already been put out there. That's true in terms of salvation from sin, healing, deliverance, everything. Every promise of God because... In First, Second Corinthians tells us every promise of God is yes in Christ. And we receive every promise of God the same way in Christ. By faith. And faith speaks like this. The word is near you. It's in your heart and on your lips. That is the word that we preach. How close is it? There's not going to be a case of anybody getting to heaven and being able to stand before God and say, God, you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't heal me. Because the truth is going to overwhelm them. It was so close. The margin was thinner than a hair to you all along. To me, all along. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what's leading us to believe. It's literally telling us that. Now, I, I want to I make some statements. If you will, go back to Genesis 28. We're almost done. Thank you, Lord. Genesis 28. Just to provide some background how big this thing is. I think it may not be revel revelatory to you at all, but it may be. Because oftentimes... I've heard people say, well, what is the true, you know, what, what is the true promise that was given to, let's say, Jacob, for instance, right? Well, we, we can read it here. Um, and, and, and the answer I usually get is that it was land, whether it be Abraham or Isaac. It's land, right? It's land. But the truth is, you have to be, you have to understand, the. it does say land, but you have to understand the thing about this land. It's an inheritance. But I want you to hear how it's actually worded. Jacob left Beersheba, I'm in, in Genesis 28:10 again, and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there overnight because the sun was set. And taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down there to sleep. He dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth in a certain place. And he went to a certain place. Now there's a ladder set up on the earth, right? The top of this ladder reached to heaven, and the messengers of God were ascending and descending. And behold, the Lord stood over it 
and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your forefather, the God of Isaac, and I'll give to you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. And your offspring shall be as, as, as countless as the dust or the sand of the ground, blah, blah, blah. You know how that goes, right? And all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I'm with you. I'll keep watch over you. And I will bring you back to this land. Now, again, they, all they want to see is land, land, and land, right? But I want you to know it's not the land that matters at all. It's, it's the place. Does that make sense? So look what verse 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is what? In this place. You notice he said, I'm going to give you the place where you lay your head. And then he says, surely the Lord inhabits this place. So what's the inheritance? It's not so much the land, it's the presence of God. It's being in the place where God dwells. You'll always be before me. And, I'll, and if you go and wander, I'll bring you back to this place. Now look at it, because we're not done. I mean, this it's really beautiful here. He says, I'll bring you back to this land, for I'll not leave you until I've done all of which I've told you. Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he says, Surely the Lord's in this place. Verse 17, he was then afraid, you know, like reverential fear, right? And why did Esau lose the birthright that Jacob's going to partake of? Because he had no reverential fear. God foreknew that he had no reverential fear. He sold the birthright for a bowl of soup. But look at Jacob's reverential fear here. He displays the thing that God adores, that somebody would regard him right? Because he's come face to face with a little piece of God and he's astounded. He says, oh my gosh, this is amazing. The place where God dwells. It's my inheritance to dwell in the place of God. He's astounded. It's a big thing to him. Whereas God foreknew, Esau would have said, I'm going hunting. Yeah, okay, whatever. This stuff's not good to make me stew for tonight. I'm not into it. Right? And what do people say? Come on, what do people say? I can't go to church. I got to work. Yeah, I can't serve God because I got to do this or I got to do that. And see, Jacob's a different kind of guy. Jacob would have said, I can't work. I got to go serve God. Right? And what did Moses tell Pharaoh? My people can't work for several days because they need to go serve their God. You see the difference between reverential fear and the thing God regards and the other? I'm not telling you to miss work on Sunday. I'm telling you he looks at the heart and he foreknows the heart, right? Yeah. So, so let's, let's finish it. He was afraid and said, how to be feared and reverenced is this place. He understood the gravity of what a special place it was. Not that it's a piece of land, that it's the place where the presence of God is. Right? He says, this is none other than what? The house of God and the gateway to heaven. Now, who, who began the house of God? Who was the first house of God? 
No, who'd the Spirit of God dwell in? Jesus Christ. He's the first house of God. Now, we're the latter house of God because we dwell in this body too, and God indwells us, right? 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 You're not sure of that? It's a good day to belong to Him. Amen? Really good day to belong to Him. You believe? Yeah. I'm trying to find something right quick. Give me just a second. Yeah. This is uh, this is what Peter says, and it's in here somewhere. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Therefore, it's also contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So we're being built into a spiritual house. So again, it's not so much that his inheritance is a plot of land. It's the land where the spiritual house of God is. It's the land where the gateway to heaven is. It's the land where Christ is. It's where God's presence dwells. That's what's important about it. And, and you remember in the Old Testament, they had to go to where God's presence dwells. But see, now we've upgraded. We're the latter house, so the presence dwells where we dwell. <laughs> Amen? So our inheritance was that everywhere we go, it stays with us now. Praise God. We, have, we are the house of God, and we possess the stairway to heaven. Amen? So that's why I say... We just really don't understand how close we are to the things of God. And if you want to use some kind of physical effort, remember that John looked and he was invited in. The word of the Lord said, come up. Now, what did he do? He surrendered to the word of God. He believed it. <laughs> and what did he do? He said, immediately I was in the spirit. Immediately I was healed. Immediately I was delivered. Immediately I believed I was blessed. Hmm? Right? And your conscience guilts you, and you say, well, that, but, I, but I didn't do this, and I didn't do that. And, you know, that's your conscience. It has nothing to do with God. Right? Generally, the Christians around you think a lot less of you than God does. I hate to say that, but it's true. The Christians around you think a lot less of you than your Lord does. He thinks more of you than you'd ever believe, and He died for you. Right? And what you think of yourself sometimes is even worse. <laughs> but the good news is, God knows better than your conscience. Right? He knows better than your conscience. So, we see this 
this is no other this is none other than the house of God and this is the gateway to heaven that's the inheritance now let me just ask you one last question how does that translate into becoming our blessing how does that translate into us you know it belongs to Jacob right How many of you sinned this week? I'm going to raise my hand. I know I have. It's not on my mind right now. It's probably a million times, but okay. Now, I'm not talking about God seeing it as sin. I'm just saying you missed the mark. Hamartia in Greek, right? You just missed the mark, right? You missed that mark that the law has established as being not a part of the character of God, right? Amen. You know, Jacob's the same way. You know, later on, not here, but later on, um, he met the army of God come marching to him. He saw these messengers of God come marching to him. And it goes on. Uh, he, had this, he had this wrestling match with God, God or, or the semblance of God. The similitude of God came and wrestled with him. And he wouldn't let go. He wouldn't let go. Now, how many Christians let go and don't hang on for the blessing? I'm just curious. How many Christians, A, don't even, haven't even been taught that the blessing belongs to them? But of the ones who have, how many of them are bullheaded and hang on and say, no, you're going to bless me? And remember, we studied the kingdom of God is what? Taken by force? Now, think about it. He wrestled with the similitude of God and back and forth, back and forth. Now, obviously, he couldn't beat God. He was wrestling for something. And you know, afterwards, he said, what can I do for you? He didn't even know he was blessed. Here's, here's, here's how it went down if you'll think about it, right? So <laughs> he figured out something, right? And he says, well, bless me. And, and, and the similitude of God, the personage, looked at him and said, hey, what's your name? What's your name? Right? Well, he said, Jacob. And it shocked him because his name meant somebody that steals from others, a supplanter. Somebody's always trying to take what belongs to somebody else, right? Which had been his nature. He, but he says, well, bless me. You know what? The guy didn't pull up a Brinks truck and hand him a bunch of gold, and the guy didn't heal all his aches and pains. Not at that moment. Instead, he said, from now on, your name's Israel. Isn't that something? The name change contained all the authority for the blessing. If you're waiting to see it, you're missing the way that God moves. You have to understand it's in the word that's near you. It's not in what you can see and physically attain. And people even praying until sweat is dropping for the same thing over and over. Some people are trying to law themselves through prayer into something instead of just receiving it and believing it. Absolutely. They're trying to work their way however they think they have to work their way. You know, if I can just be good enough and do enough stuff, right? But they're missing how God works. All God did was change your name, folks. You either believe it or you don't. <laughs> you went from unrighteous to righteous. You had a name that was sinner, missing the mark, 
unblessed, ungrateful, whatever you want to call it, that was your name. And when you received Jesus Christ, he called you son. And see, that, that, that infers the authority for all the other things. You have to apply that yourself. All you get's the name change, right? Which is everything if you believe it and confess it. Right? So who are you? Going forward, who are you going to be? Are you still Jacob? Or are you going to call yourself Israel? I'm reminded in Romans what we read, it said this. It said, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your lips, you shall be saved. Right? Truth to that is it doesn't say you can say whatever you want. It says you have to believe. But if you do believe and you confess and what you've confessed is yours. And that's what it says. It's an amazing thing that God has done in trusting all of these things to us, and they're so close. It's just a matter of the heart and a word. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. It really is. But if it weren't true, you wouldn't be saved right now. Exactly. See, they're all true or not. And if any of it is, see, everybody will give you that salvation comes that way. What they don't realize is they're, they're capitulating that it all comes that way. There aren't two ways in Scripture. There's only the way that is Christ. And you only receive that way one way, through faith. Now, many people want to take salvation and put it through Christ and take everything else and put it through law or works, or, but it's never taught that way in Scripture. They just feel like they have to... Really, their conscience guilts them to believe that they can somehow work for the things of God. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Later on, Jacob said, well, then what's your name? He said, why do you want to know my name? Why do you ask my name? Now, I want to, I want to clarify that. He's saying, I've already told you when I came to you the first time. You don't, I, there's only one God. You see, when, when he met him at, at Bethel, you know, he said, I'm the God of your forefather, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then I'm going to do this for you. You get it? He told him, and then all this time passed. He got married. He had kids. He took care of Laban's flocks. He did all this stuff. God brought him back like he said he would. He brought him back to this spot, right, to this, not necessarily a physical spot, but this point. And they struggled, and he held on. He said, no, you're going to bless me. You're going to bless me. Are you, are you believing that God will bless you? Are you hanging on, or are you giving up after 10 minutes? But he held on to his faith, right? And then how would the blessing come? What's your name, man? Jacob, which means supplanter. And he realized it himself. He's like, I just confessed this terrible. He goes, that's all right. I'm changing your name to Israel. Now you're blessed. It, it, it eludes me right now what Israel means. That's why I'm not hazarding to guess. I've already read it today, and it's just eluding me. But we can look it up together in a minute. But at any rate, suffice it to say this. Then the next thing he says is, what's your name? He says, why do you want to know my name? You already know me. Did I not come to you much earlier and tell you that I would bless you? and that I would bring you to this land, bring you back to this point, and now you want to know my name? 
I told you my name already. What's he doing? Tying it in. He's finishing the story. Amen? God's beautiful. The importance of words can't be overstated with God. He's not doing it with his hand. And his hand, if, even if he were, is not visible. The finger of God, the Bible says, is the Spirit of God. So it's not visible anyway. So trying to see that blessing before it manifests and believe it, it'll never happen. Never happen. But if you can get it right here to the point that it pushes its way out here, it's yours. It's yours. Now, if you want to further on, you could study on your own. You know, places, I think it's like Mark 11, where he says, believing these things and not doubting, you shall have them. How could that possibly be true? Because we're that close to it. And it's just a matter of believing and the word coming forth. Right? 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 Amen? So, when we, when we see those kind of things, if, if, you just, if we could just spend time in that, with God, before God, and spend time in it and say, Lord, show me. Because what was Moses after? Lord, I need to know your ways. I need to know your ways. Right? Well, you know his way now. We need to build it up on the inside of us reading scripture. His way is his word. His way is through authority. It's not you picking up a hammer and doing something yourself. It's through the authority given. Right? Amen? That's the way it is. The way it is, it dovetails in with our message to quit asking for things that are already given. Instead, begin to confess the things that are given. Because a person that believes confesses, they don't ask. Can you hear me? If you believe something yours, you're not, you're not still asking. You're confessing it's yours. And Romans 10, 9, where we said that if you confess with your lips, you know, if you did a study on that word confess, it means, to, it means to say what someone else is saying. If you believe in your heart, you confess with your lips. If you believe in your heart what God said, and with your lips you say the same things from the belief that's in your heart, how many times do we counteract those things by what we say? But if you believe and you confess, that is to say the same things God says, you shall be saved. Right? So literally, your salvation hinges on your belief and saying that you are saved. Saying that you're confessing that you're saved. Hmm? Confessing that Jesus Christ was raised. You with me? Saying what God said. Jesus was raised for my sin. I believe I'm saved. It gives you an idea of the importance of words.